This teaching comes to you from the team at St Mark's Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. So if you would keep that passage up, uh, open in front of you, as always, Paul's logic, you need to see it worked out on the page, partly because he's quoting other people. So sometimes what you've heard with your ear is a quote that someone else is saying, and he's then going to, to address. So uh, great to have that open in front of you. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 23 to 11, verse 1, and let's pray as we dip into that passage. Give us grace, O Lord, not only to hear your word with our ears, but also to receive it into our hearts and to show it forth in our lives for the glory of your great name. Amen. And just a couple of weeks ago, a Dutchman called Emil Rattelband, who calls himself, I imagine it's on his business card, a positivity guru, declared that he uh, wanted a court in the Netherlands to give him a new birthday. Now, currently, Rattelband is 69 years old, according to his birth certificate. He wants to change his birth certificate to make him officially 49 years old. He said, when I'm 69, I am limited. If I'm 49, then I can buy a new house, drive a different car. I can take up more work. When I'm on Tinder, and it says that I'm 69, I don't get an answer. When I'm 49, with the face I have, I will be in a luxurious position, he said. He argued to, his, to the court that his body was that of a 45-year-old man. At the end of the court appearance, Rattleband said, it's a question of free will. Now, Rattleband's case is extreme, but it's an example of something really deep within Western culture, our deep pursuit of individual freedom. We've become, you and I, hyper-individualists, intent on bending even reality itself to our wills. What matters most is our subjective experience of freedom to self-determine, to self-actualize, to self-fulfill, to self-express. We want to be free to pursue our own happiness and identity. I mean, that's what the Declaration of Independence said, that we should have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We, need, we want to choose to be who we want to be and not what others tell us we are. We want to be free from the oppressive hand of social institutions and customs with their rules and regulations like birth certificates. And so we've developed the language of human rights to give expression to this idea, this quest for personal freedom. And we should say this isn't merely a selfish quest. We really believe that this is where personhood and meaning and fulfilled human life can be found. And certainly, we don't want to be a place like North Korea where individual freedom is completely absent. That looks miserable. We all look over there and we, we think, oh my goodness, it must be terrible to live in North Korea where there is so little personal liberty. The shocking evidence is that hyper-individualism doesn't make us happy either. We are increasingly a more lonely, anxious and depressed society. One in five of us has some kind of anxiety disorder. That's not because each of us, are, because of an individual problem, that's a social and cultural problem. Britain has just appointed a minister 
for loneliness. One study found that Australians currently have an average of 3.9 close friends. But only in 2005, we had 6.4 close friends on average. A survey conducted in 2016 by Lifeline found that 82.5% of Australians feel lonely. The quest for personal freedom has left us isolated. It's imprisoned us. Is there another way to live? Can we somehow find a way of living that doesn't oppress us but doesn't also disconnect us from one another. Well, Paul's letter to the Corinthians has a vision for exactly that. And it's completely radical. It it overturns our expectations. And I want to invite you today to give it a deep consideration as an alternative way to live, because the way we're living now does not seem to be working. And this is Paul's secret. This is what he wants to tell us. He says, use your freedom to seek the good of other people. Use your freedom to seek the good of other people. In Corinth, there was a group of relatively new Christians. Paul had planted a church there and then moved on. And this group of new Christians were trying to live a different kind of life in the midst of a pagan city that didn't really understand them. And it wasn't very easy. What did it look like to follow Christ when the whole economy and food business and sex life of the city was tied to worshipping pagan gods? What they discovered in Christ was an incredible freedom. Following Jesus meant being free from the tyranny of the old worship. They did not have to run around appeasing other gods. They did not have to keep the Jewish law. In Jesus, they had complete forgiveness and acceptance. They had a profound security and confidence. And they had each other too. They'd been brought into a new community of people and been made part of Christ's body, the church. They were free, and yet they belonged. They were free, and yet they belonged. And this was an extraordinary moment for some people of delight, like being let out of prison after many years, like I imagine Renee Lawrence felt this week. You can imagine them saying, now that I'm free, at least some of them saying this, now that I'm free, I'm really going to let it go. You can imagine perhaps some Jewish Christians um, imagining taking on a kilo of bacon, just for one example. The particular issue that they had to face in their time was eating meat that had been offered to pagan idols. Some people felt even as Christians that they couldn't, as Christians that they couldn't eat meat that had been offered to idols, and so they, they felt that really they had no option but to be vegetarian. Some of them were arguing that, no, they could eat anything they want. This was the debate. But Paul sides very, very strongly in verse 25 and 26 with those who say, you can eat the meat that's been offered to idols. You are free in Christ. What does he say in verse 25 and 6? Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the grounds of conscience, for the earth and its fullness are the Lord's. Everything belongs to God. He made it that it's been offered to some pipsqueak deity, does not taint it. Eat away. Hoe in. Jesus Christ is more powerful anyway. He's not some wimpy deity whose power can be diluted by a few particles of protein. Now, if you're actually worshipping another god, that's another matter. But here you're not. So if you're not worshipping another god in doing this, then you're free because of the power of the gospel. 
I don't know if you realise, but you and I have an extraordinary freedom and protection and security and confidence available to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ who died on the cross for us. It's the most real and authentic human freedom that there is. It's freedom from guilt and sin. It's freedom from the belief that we need to obey regulations and rules in order to impress God. It's freedom from the past. Our actions that have been such a heavy weight on us. It is freedom from our past. It is freedom from the expectations of others, from their judgment, because we only know one judge and we have come to him and experienced his mercy. It's a ridiculous thing, then, for Christians to go putting the rules back in. Rules about what you can and cannot eat or drink or what you can do on certain days. Being a Christian means that your conscience can be clear as far as all that stuff goes. A great example of this is alcohol. Now, some Christians have said over history that it's a sin for Christians to drink alcohol. We know that uh, alcohol has terrible social consequences and uh, does enormous damage to our society. And when even uh, even Peter Fitzsimons, the rugby, the, the sports journalist from the Herald, is saying that we perhaps should cut down our alcohol drinking, you know that we've got a problem. But it's quite wrong to say that it's a sin to drink alcohol. I've heard Christians like this argue that when Jesus turned all that water into wine at a wedding, he was actually making unfermented grape juice. That's not what it says. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that Jesus made an excess of fine wine at that wedding. He also says, the Bible also says that God gave us wine in order to make our hearts glad. And I don't think that's just because it tastes nice. People who say that drinking alcohol is a sin are misrepresenting our freedom in Christ. We are free to drink or not to drink. After all, who made wine? Well, let's make this a little bit more edgy. What about marijuana? Now, it's illegal, so I wouldn't use it because I think Christians should keep the law. And now, to be honest, if it was legal, I wouldn't use it because I'm uh, daggy middle-aged and boring and I don't really want to. But I wouldn't see an objection to a Christian using it per se, were it to be legal. But here comes the radical part of Paul's argument. He says in verse 23 that there's a kind of conversation he's having with the Corinthians. Some of them might have had problems of conscience when it comes to eating meat offered to idols, but some of them were slinging around the slogan, All things are lawful. Now, this was the freedom party. They were exulting in their freedom, and they were turning to the prudes among them and saying, didn't you hear what Paul said? All things are lawful. We don't have to submit to those rules anymore. And they'd be rubbing their freedom in the face of those terrible prudes. When I was at uni, a group of us young Christians were a bit like this. We thought that Christians, some Christians, had too many rules and we'd been brought up with some of those rules and now it was our time to throw those rules back in the faces of those who wanted to keep them. I remember going to a national Christian student conference, exciting times I know, and someone telling me, oh now these are the Baptists from Western Australia and they're very pious, they don't don't even dance. And uh, so on the conference, what we're going to do is we're going to smoke cigars 
drink port and dance till dawn. That'll show them. What would Paul have said to us? He would have said to us, you guys from Sydney, that worldly town, you are theologically correct, but you've missed the point because you lack love. You are using your freedom to put others down, not to build them up. After all, why have you been given this extraordinary freedom in the gospel? Your freedom is an opportunity to do whatever is best, not for you, but for the other person, to the glory of God. Now see how radical this idea is. Your freedom is not for your self-expression and self-fulfillment and self-actualization. Your freedom is actually an opportunity to share Christ with others by being like Christ to others. To share Christ with others by being like Christ to others. Your freedom is given to you so that you can live a Christ-shaped life, a persuasive life that makes people attracted not just to you, but to the Christ that they see in you. And this persuasive life of freedom has three components to it. And Paul outlines them here. First of all, in verse 24, he says, Seek the advantage of the other. Seek the advantage of the other. Use your freedom to seek the advantage of the other. The purpose of our freedom is to build others up. We have rights, but we don't need to exercise them. Our focus is rather to be on caring for the other person, looking out for the rights of others in our midst. So Paul says, you're offered a big plate of meat. Fantastic. You know it's been sacrificed to an idol. Eat it because your conscience should be fine and because it will offend your host not to. It would be great to share in what they give you. But now if someone, a believer or an unbeliever, turns around and says to you with a raised eyebrow, look, that's been offered in sacrifice. What are you doing? Are you participating in some other form of worship here? Then Paul says, don't eat it. If it's going to cause problems for someone else, don't eat it. Not because of your conscience but because of their precious conscience. Your goal is the other person being right with God. So use your freedom to help them. That's the purpose of your freedom, to build others up. It is there for their good, not for yours. And second, don't give offence. You see, that's what Paul says here in verse 32. Now, now, of course, we have to qualify this a little bit because Paul already knows that the gospel gives great offence. He knows from the beginning of 1 Corinthians, he's actually spoken about it at length, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is offensive to both Jews and Greeks. Jews were demanding miraculous signs. Greeks wanted clever wisdom. And the gospel was none of these. The idea that we'd be saved not by our own efforts, but by the work of Jesus dying on the cross was offensive. The idea that we, we're actually, we have fallen short of the glory of God, and even though we look decent, we're not, that is offensive. The idea that the humiliation and disgrace of the cross is the means by which God rescues us is offensive. And Paul certainly offended people all over the, the Mediterranean. But Paul is saying, don't give your offense on any other basis 
Use your freedom in the gospel not to offend people, but to connect with people and win them over. Not to offend, but to connect. Not to separate or divide, but to connect with people. I've been trying to think of examples of this during the week, and uh, here's one that came to mind. As a Christian, you are free to join whatever political party you like and to get involved in politics. And in fact, it's great that uh, Christians are involved in politics. But personally, I've chosen not to do that, and I wouldn't do that. I don't think it works with my particular role and my particular situation. Now, being partisan in politics and having your own views is not wrong. But in our increasingly divided society, is it going to give unnecessary offence to others and distract from Christ if I come out and say, I'm going to vote for the Calathumpian party and they're the only ones that are any good? Well, I think so. I do have my own political views for sure, but I'm more concerned that my neighbours come to know Christ than that my favourite party gets elected or that the party I hate doesn't get elected. I don't want people to think that believing in Christ comes with belonging to one side or other in a culture war. That's how our media want to play it. They want to divide us from our society, of course, but I want to resist that so that people will be saved, so that people will see Christ in me and honour him and glorify God. Now, Paul went a long, long way with this. Uh, he even had uh, his disciple Timothy circumcised when they were going back to, uh, to Jerusalem because he didn't want to give offence to Jews so that he can win them to Christ, um, which was kind of abstract for Paul, I suppose, but Timothy was really committed to that principle. It's an extraordinary thing, isn't it? He said, I don't want to give offence. It's not necessary for someone to be circumcised to be in the people of God. But in order to make sure that we win people over and not give offence, we will do this. So Paul's second principle is not to give offence. Firstly, to do everything for the good of the other, not give offence. And thirdly, this one, do it all to the glory of God. That's what he says in verse 31. So he's not just running around trying to please everyone so we can sell them products or keep them happy. When I read it, I thought, you know, it sort of feeds all my worst vices. He's sort of running around trying to please everyone, says Paul. And I think, oh my goodness, you, you just appease everyone. You just do what everyone else likes. It's sort of a kind of toxic way to be, isn't it? Just to please people and it feels inauthentic. Do you say to people, uh, you tell people lies, you conceal from them your true feelings and your true self. And I think this idea that we do it to the glory of God helps us to see what Paul has in mind. Eat drink, vote, dance, whatever, do it to the, to the glory of God, building Christians up in the Lord, drawing non-Christians into Christ, seeing that many might be saved. Paul's freedom is not just for whatever takes his fancy. It has a target. He's trying to live a life that looks like Jesus' life so that others might know Jesus. He says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. His idea of radical freedom is not about hyper-individualism. It's about building a community transformed by the grace of God to love one another and to share Christ. Do we here have that focus? Are we ready to be like Paul, to become like the Jews, to save the Jews? What would that take? That's not an abstract question for us living here in the eastern suburbs. And neither is the question of becoming like the Greeks to save the Greeks. 
What would it take for us to be like the Greens to save the Greens? Or like the feminists to save the feminists? Or like the gay community to save the gay community? Or like the hedonists? Or like the conservatives? Or like our indigenous neighbours? Are we ready to use our freedom so that God may be glorified in them? You might be thinking, isn't it a matter of pretending that you are something that you are not? Pretending to be a greenie when you've never recycled a thing and you own shares in a coal mining project? Supporting the swans when you hate Aussie rules? And Paul is not here about hiding your true self. Rather, it's how true hospitality rightly works. We are the ones with the true freedom in Christ and with the goal of glorifying God. So we make the concessions in order to make it easier for others to know Jesus. We can flex on non-essentials in order to win people for Christ. You may well ask, look, well, how do, how do you do this, Michael? I mean, what, what, what are you doing to make this happen? Well, what I try to do is to listen and understand. I don't try and pretend to be something I'm not, but I think I can a- approach anyone with the goal of listening to them and understanding them. So much of modern communication is aggressively tribal and divisive. It looks for for conflict and disconnection. Even if I disagree with someone, and I can't pretend for a second that I belong to their group, I can at least appreciate where they're coming from if I listen to them. And I try not to just look as if I'm a Christian, trying to win greater freedoms and protections for Christians. Now, this has been one of the really disheartening things about the recent discussion we've had in the media about religious freedom. It's really important for us in Australia to have religious freedoms. Extraordinarily important, and we we are underdone in terms of our law, in terms of uh, religious freedom, and I can certainly talk to you, you can bend your ear about why it's necessary uh, later. But the discussion and the way the churches have communicated it has caused great unnecessary misunderstanding and offence in our community and made it much, much harder to preach Christ. It's really put a block for people. We've come across as cruel and mean and self-interested when we should be nothing but. We should be different because we have this extraordinary blessing of Christ's freedom. We should be different because we don't need to operate from fear or in defence. I'd like to challenge you. Where in your life... Could you use your freedom for the good of others rather than for your own pleasure or self-expression? And I want to return to alcohol. Uh, My friend, just to give you one example, my friend Greg Anderson is the Bishop of the Northern Territory. He came and preached here not so long ago. Now, um, Greg does not drink. But why why does Greg not drink? Greg thinks that drinking is fine. Greg has no problem with alcohol or with those who drink alcohol. But he's the bishop, the Anglican bishop in the Northern Territory. The Christians in the Northern Territory live amongst communities where alcohol is a terrible scourge. There are many Christians in his churches who are struggling daily with the business of, with, with alcohol, either in their families or themselves. And so it's the least that Greg can do for the good of his brothers and sisters there, for the good of the gospel in the Northern Territory, to put aside the pleasure of a glass of wine of an evening so that they might be saved. I wonder where in your life you might make such a sacrifice of your own freedom so that others might know Christ. 
What Paul says should also shape how we think about our church community. Are we here an exclusive club where you have to wear certain clothes or be a certain kind of person to fit in? Do we give that impression whether we like it or not? Or are we rather an easy community for others to belong to? Are we hospitable? Are we open? Or do people get the impression that there are barriers here to belonging? Because we have what so many people are looking for. We have a freedom, a real freedom, that doesn't separate us from other people, but a freedom that actually makes us part of a family held together by the love of God and by the power of his Holy Spirit. Let's rejoice in it. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources and find more information about the community of St Mark's.